Every time we turn around, it feels like the world keeps changing. The culture seems to be collapsing in on itself. And if we're honest with ourselves, not only do we feel unsure about where things are headed, we don't even feel sure about how we're supposed to respond now. Do we speak up? Do we play along? Do we engage? Do we withdraw? The truth is, none of this is new. For centuries, God has been calling, strengthening, and empowering his people for his purposes. Generations before us, Daniel was called to courageously stand as a beacon of hope and healing within a hurting and collapsing culture. You were not here by accident. You were not made to cower, to run, to hide. You were made for these times. My, uh, my son loves going on these creature hunts, is what he calls them. And uh, we used to live at the Solish Ponds and uh, down in Fairview, and we would go on these trails, and he would, uh, we, we, he'd bring his little, this little cage, and he'd want to turn over rocks and, and, and stones and logs and look for creatures. And so we're doing this one time, and uh, he rolls over this log, and I kid you not, the largest beetle I've ever seen in my life just crawls out, and it's just like, turns and like looks at us, like, what are you going to do? You're not going to grab me, you know? And, uh, and so my, my son, he, he knows, he's like, looks at me, he's like, Dad, you know, you, you're, you're brave and courageous, you're going to, you got this? He's like, and grab it for me, put it in the cage, and I'm looking at the thing, I'm like, there ain't no way I'm touching that beetle, you know what I'm talking about? Like, there's no way, and so I just look at him, I'm like, Dex, I believe in you, buddy. Like, <laughs> You got this. And he looks at the beetle and he looks at me and he looks at the beetle and he just goes, I'll be brave. And he grabs the beetle and he throws it in the cage and we name it and feed it. It's still in our house today. But uh, this is, I love moments like that because I want my son to be courageous. I want him to be bold. And we are facing a crisis right now. It is a crisis of courage. You look around our nation, you look around our world, and we are lacking Courage. We have been crippled by fear. We have been crippled by a willingness to stand up and be bold in our faith. Churches are, have refused to gather out of fear of both health and reputation. There's a crisis where no one will stand up for truth, but rather they cower to the crowd. A crisis where we, defi- we are defining our lives by what we stand against rather than what we live for. This is a crisis. You feel it? You, you see it, you observe it. What do we need in a moment like this? You guys, we need God's word. I want you to grab your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter six. I was reading this passage this week and I thought only God and his sovereignty and his goodness would, would bring a passage to our church, to our body in a moment like this. So this is the most famous passage of the book of Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den. And so here's what we're gonna do is we're gonna go through And we're going to explore and kind of break down and understand the setup to this. And then we're going to look at Daniel's response and how do we, as people, follow in response to this. So Daniel, uh, chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It pleased Darius, who's Darius? Darius is the new king of Babylon, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all, the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. What's happening here is there is a new king, and this new king is establishing his government. Uh, 120 satraps, and then there's these three high officials, and then Daniel, he's gonna be over 
he's going to be over it all because, because Daniel has built this great reputation of wisdom and of faith. Verse four, then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for a complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. They don't like Daniel. Why? Because he is a foreigner. He has foreign beliefs. He worships Yahweh, a foreign God, and so they want to work against him. It says, but they find no, they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. When it uses the word faithful, it's actually not talking about how he was faithful to his faith. It's saying he was faithful to Babylon. He was faithful to this king. He, he did his job and he worked hard. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of God. So what do they do? They actually start to conspire together to work against Daniel. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except for you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. They pass a law. They get it written they get this law written, and, and they actually deceive the king. They lie because they said, we're all in agreement. You know who wasn't in agreement in that was Daniel. Why? Because his voice is being silenced in this moment, right? Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document. Put this into law so that it cannot be changed. According to the law, the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked, Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. So here's our setup to the story of Daniel and the lion's den, okay? And what I want you to see is, and this has been a helpful framework for me as I've been walking through and making decisions over this last year, is there's three jurisdictions that God has established, and I want to look at their responsibilities, okay? It's the jurisdiction of family, the church, and the government. And these are good, God-ordained, God-established jurisdiction, okay? And they all, but they all have a role, and they all have a function. What, what is the role of family? It's to protect and to provide. It's for training and the welfare of both young and old, okay? So why does family exist? That's, that's how you care for kids. That's how you serve and provide for one another. And when, and when you get old, who takes care of the old people? Your family does. This is, this is an, um, something that God has established. So, so there's this jurisdiction of the family. The second jurisdiction is the jurisdiction of the church. What is the jurisdiction of the church's responsibility? It's to make disciples through the preaching of God and teaching of God's word and, the, and, and engaging in the sacraments like communion and baptism. So Jesus said, I'm gonna build my church. How does he advance his mission, advance the gospel? He does it through the church. This is the church's role. But then the government, the government actually has a role as well, and it's a good role. It's enforcing communal and civil order. It's protecting the vulnerable. It's upholding God-given rights. Okay, this is why we read in our constitution, we find these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal. This is part of the role of government. If, if those rights get trampled, the government needs to step in and say, nope, this is not okay. When, when somebody's not being taken care of, no, we, we need to take care of them. And we need to have order 
and civility, okay? But there's two things that happen in, this, in these three jurisdictions where everything goes wrong. One of them is when, when you abdicate responsibility. You say, I, I'm actually not gonna do my role and things fall apart. Or on the other end of the spectrum, when, you, when one of these jurisdictions oversteps its bounds and crosses the lines and starts to blur the lines. Let, let me explain that a little bit. Okay, abdicating responsibility is when a father fails to protect and provide for his children and his wife. And, and maybe he's abusive. Maybe the children are being malnourished. What has to happen in that situation? That's, that's when the government has a responsibility through things like DHS and police officers to step in and be like, no, we have to protect these kids. We have a responsibility as a community, and, and this family is not healthy, and this is not good, okay? And, and you just see this mess on your hands when, when a family abdicates its responsibility or when a church fails to actually teach the Bible to actually teach the scriptures, and then they become this social cause. Hey, we do good things and we serve our community. And so, yes, you're doing good things, but you're called to preach the good news. You're not making disciples, and all of a sudden you become this like volunteer workforce for your community and the government and what it's trying to accomplish, which in one sense is not a bad thing, and in another sense is a terrible thing, because you are not a church anymore if you're not preaching the gospel and teaching God's word. You've abdicated your responsibility of making disciples, okay? But on the other end of the spectrum is overstepping your bounds, okay? So if somebody came into my house and did something to me or my family or stole things, and I'm like, I need to take this into my own hands and do something about it, that's actually evil. That's wrong. That is, in that moment, that's the government's responsibility, okay? But if Kevin Carlson tracks him down, you know, takes him, put, throws him behind bars, that's called justice. If I track them down, grab, throw them in my car, put them behind bars, it's called kidnapping, right? I have overstepped my bounds. We have to understand our areas of jurisdiction. If political if political leaders or mayors or police officers come into this church, guess what? They're under the jurisdiction of the leadership of the church. The church continues to lead and say, this is how we lead. But as soon as I get in my car and, and, and start driving off, if that same police officer pulls me over, I am now under her authority. I now need to submit to her jurisdiction. I'm sorry, Ossifer, what seems to be the problem, right? Like, no, so you see this? You see these boundaries? These are God-given boundaries. These are good things when we fu- society is functioning well when we're, when we're functioning in these roles, okay? But what I would need you to see is I need you to see Babylon's strategy because Babylon's strategy has not changed. What's, what is their strategy? What do they want to do? First, they want to collapse the family unit. Daniel chapter one, what do we see? Daniel, these young men and these young women, they are removed from their homes. They're disconnected from their families. And that is Babylon's strategy today. Andrew Peach, he's an author. He, 12 years ago, he wrote an article called On the Demise of Fatherhood, and I wanna read it to you. This is 12 years ago, and we see how it's advanced. Anyone unfortunate enough to pick up a newspaper, that's how you know it was 12 years ago. Everybody's like, what's a newspaper? Yeah, <laughs> that is unfortunate, okay? Is painfully aware that one-third of American children live without any father. And that in many inner cities, the out-of-wedlock birth rate exceeds 70%. Also well-known, though rarely acknowledged, is the devastation that such a lack of paternity has wreaked on children. 
and society more generally. Fatherless children have rates of incarceration, criminal activity, possession of firearms, poverty, drug and alcohol abuse, teen pregnancy, incompletion of school, and overall parental neglect and maltreatment alarmingly higher than their two-parent counterparts. Coupled with the the staggering divorce rate and the move in the West toward alternative lifestyles, permanent bachelorhood, cohabitation, and serial monogamy, it is now possible, without the slightest exaggeration, to begin using using phrases such as the end of the human family. This is 2021. This is the day and age we live in. What does Babylon want to do? What is the enemy's strategy? It's to collapse the family unit. Second, they want to shrink the church's self-autonomy, authority of how it can operate and what it can teach. They want to say, in Babylon, they come and say, 30 days, just 30 days, no prayer to any other god, any foreign leader other than our king. What what does Babylon want to do today? It wants to shrink the church. It wants to limit what it can do and what it can say and how it can operate. Many churches, you guys, many churches have been closed for over a year now. One in five, 20% of churches will not make it through 2021 without permanently closing their doors. There's churches all around us that have already died. They just don't realize it yet because they think people still are watching online because they got a number tick up. No, that's not church. That's not engagement. 70% of pastors, they interviewed, and 70% of pastors said they would quit today if they haven't had an alternative source of income. Seven out of 10. And there continue to be limits and restrictions on churches across our country, limiting how many people can gather and what, literally what you can do when you gather together. What does Babylon want to do? What does the enemy want to do? He wants to limit the church. And then lastly, Babylon wants to grow the government as large and powerful as possible because then it can outlaw whatever it wants. Now, remember, government is established as a really good thing. But here's the problem. As an individual, as an evil individual, you are very limited in what you can do. But you you get an evil government led by evil people, there's very few things that can stop it. And so what does Babylon want to do? And what have we seen for generations? It wants to grow evil (laughs) as big and powerful as possible. This is what Supreme Court Justice Alito said. We are living in a season of unprecedented government malfeasance we have not seen since the Declaration of Independence, the ramifications of which we will live with long after this virus is forgotten, all right? This is not some blog boy in his opinion. This is a Supreme Court justice saying that, saying, you know, what I see, this is a problem. So what do do we do? What do we do when, what do we need when the family is collapsing? What do we need when the church is buckling? What do we need when the government is overreaching? You guys, we need men and women of courage. We need you to step up and love your families. We need you to to gather as a church and worship God. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at God's word and we're gonna look at Daniel, this prophetic picture, and we're gonna look at five ways his courage is lived out. Now, five is a lot because you're not gonna hit all of these, but there's gonna be one or two 
that you're like, that's God's word for me today. That's what I needed to hear. This is why God's word is so beautiful. It is timeless and it's truth and it is timely in the pictures that it gives us. So I want you to look at verse 10. This is my favorite verse in all of Daniel. It says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, meaning uh, he was not unaware that it was a law, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Daniel's, Daniel courageously chooses worship no matter the cost. That's what Daniel does. Now, there's great cost to Daniel. I need you to understand, there is a much higher cost to Daniel than there is to us. Like, there's some beautiful things, some beautiful freedoms we experience in this country, some beautiful protections we have as a church, but Daniel did not have those, and he had to weigh the cost. He's like, man, man, I can break my, this could break my relationship and trust that I've built with these, with, with this king. This could actually, you know, he's getting messages saying, hey, you know, you're a poor representation of your faith if you just buckle. And if, 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 you, if you actually, if, you, if you're not obedient and you're disobedient in, the, in this time, you could poorly represent the, these followers of Yahweh. And that's a problem. And ultimately, what, what is he risking? He's risking his life. To be thrown into the lion's den is basically a death sentence from Babylon. That's one of the ways they, they execute that. And when you look at Daniel's life, he spent his whole life engaging, participating, and being compliant. He really did. He has this great relationship. He has this great reputation. He's involved in so many things in his community. There's very few things he put limits on. But don't miss this. When they crossed the line, he drew the line. When they crossed over and said, you cannot worship God, and you cannot pray, and you cannot gather. They said, he said, no, I'm drawing the line here. David Foster Wallace is a brilliant author. He says, not, not a believer, by the way. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. What he's saying here, and this is a man who ended up taking his own life at age 46, but what he's observing, he's like, look, we worship every day. And some of us have been lulled into worshiping things other than God. You know what the scriptures call that? It calls it idolatry. We have made idols out of so many things. We have made idols out of safety. We have succumbed and buckled to the foreign god of fear. We have made idols out of nationalism, where we, where we say, no, Christian nationalism, this is where it is. And, and we build our lives on the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution more than we build it on God's word. And there's no place for that. You are, do not make an idol out of your political party. Your allegiance is to Jesus and Jesus alone. Do not buckle, do not make an idol out of the evil force of popular opinion and worldly approval. You are either worshiping God no matter matter the cost or you're bowing to foreign idols there is no in between we are all worshipers and so I, I know I'm preaching to the choir 
my rowdiest service here, but come to church, okay? <laughs> Sit under the word. Worship with your lungs. No matter what rule is passed, never let them shut your mouth of glory and praise because you are created for the praise of his glory. You know that, right? So this is how we live. And if you have friends and loved ones that are followers of Jesus that have not gathered for 12, 13, 14 months, tell them now's the time, okay? Stop listening to, to, to what local leaders say or what the culture says or what's happening. Say, no, no, it's the time for the church to gather and to be a people that move forward because Daniel said, enough is enough. They, they, looked, at, they looked at his faith growing and his influence growing and they're like, man, this is starting to peak. We just need 30 days to flatten the curve. No prayer for 30 days and it'll all be good. And Daniel didn't say, you know, hey, like they're putting that on every religion. Let's just comply and go along. He said, no, I will continue to move forward. I will, I will draw the line because they've crossed the line. And so, so hear me on this, Christians, okay? When you go into a grocery store, that is not your jurisdiction. So lovingly support the rules that they've set out. Don't fight it. Don't rebel against it. Say, no, I, no I'm going to play my role, and, and I'm going to understand this, okay? When you walk into a restaurant, and they say 25% capacity, look in and see everybody spread out, and you and 50 people, you, you cram in the lobby and wait your turn, right? Okay? <laughs> but you do it lovingly. And you say, this is not my jurisdiction. But when they want to come to God's house and tell us how and when and if we can worship, they can go pound sand. Because we are God's people. And we are created for worship. So I, and look, when I look back over these last seven months that we've been gathering, I have no regrets. Like, it, it, it's been hard. We've, we've adapted and, and, and changed, and it's like, like every week, there's, there, there's, some, there's something different. And by God's grace, you know what? Like we haven't had some kind of mass outbreak. There's a lot of churches that have, there's a lot of gatherings that have, a lot of things that have, but by God's grace, we haven't. And I'm really grateful for that. And, and look, writing on the wall, it doesn't seem like that's gonna happen because, you know, like half of you have had it anyway, right? And 25% or, and of Oregon has gotten the vaccine. It seems like that's been really effective. And so it doesn't seem like this is something we're, we're gonna have a mass outbreak. But, but like, I need you to know, like you, like, you could get sick because you came to church. Like, there could be a cost, you realize that, right? Like, you could get in a car accident on your way to church. Your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers could hate you and say you're the problem because you're going to church. And what I'm saying is that you would courageously say, I'm gonna choose church and worship and gathering no matter the cost because we're followers of Jesus and this is what we're gonna do. And so like, hear me on this, like we're not closing, all right? Like I don't care what is laid out, I don't care what is said, I don't care what stipulations, we will not close our doors. <laughs> Now, we may adapt and we may change, but you guys are like, you guys change everything every week anyway. Like, pe people ask you, what time's church? Like, I don't know, I just show up and like, just wait for it to start. Like, they don't know what's happening. Like, how many people in this room? What's that room? Where's the arrows? Like, we still have just random arrows around our building. Like, I don't even know what any of them mean anymore, right? But we're gonna gather because we will not turn people away from the house of God. 
Like, we, we, we won't. We are going to continue to gather as a church. We will not close our mouths because we're created for worship. The rocks of Oregon will not cry out and worship to Jesus because we're silent, right? Like, we are going to lift our voices to him, and we will not separate kids from their community and connection that their little hearts desperately need. In a season like this, we're going to be the church. And, like, like, if they arrest me, arrest me. You know what I'm saying? Like, I know that sounds far-fetched, but, like, Canada is not that far away. You know, if I said that a year and a half ago, you're like, oh, he's weird. Now you're like, hey, yeah. <laughs> but if they tell me to stop gathering, stop preaching the gospel, like, like come get me, right? Like, then that's fine. Like, Nolan will fill in for a few weeks, and then they'll come after him. And then Scott will step up, and that'll be fine. And then Chris and Andre and Jordan will just get through this rotation. And when we run out of preachers, we're going to have an hour-long worship session. Right? Am I right? And guess what? We got like 30 people on our worship team. So that buys us months. And, and by the time they get through that, I'm going to be ready to go again. Let's start the cycle all over. We are preaching as a church. We will gather. And so church, be bold in your faith. Like Daniel, have courage in the name to shout the name of Jesus from the rooftops. Because he, Daniel, he could have closed his windows, but he didn't. He could have prayed in the basement, but he didn't. He could have laid low for 30 days, made some small temporary sacrifice and says, I'm just gonna go along. But they crossed the line. And so he drew the line. He says, that's okay. He boldly declared with his life and his action who was his king. And he trusted with all of his life and his faith, that no matter what it would cost him, it was worth the cost. You guys, why is it worth the cost? Because Jesus is worthy of our worship. That's why. It's not about church. It's not about rights. It's about Jesus. You realize that Jesus came to earth, though it cost him eternal closeness with his father? You realize that Jesus called us as his disciples, though it cost him betrayal? You realize that Jesus battled Satan, though it cost him deep suffering? Jesus paid our price, though it cost him a cross. Jesus established his kingdom, though it cost him a crown of thorns. Jesus loved, Jesus saved, Jesus redeemed, though it cost him his life. And so he is worthy of our worship. And Jesus said in Luke 9, says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes back in his glory. When Jesus comes in his glory, you do not want him to be ashamed of you. You will not care about what anybody says or what anybody thinks but the reigning king when he returns. So live like it now. Live for it now. That's who Jesus is. He's worthy of all of it. And so would we, like Daniel, courageously choose worship no matter the cost? Now, that's point one. So we're going to preach, all right? Number two, Daniel's courage was forged when he was young, okay? So what do we know about Daniel at this time? He's about 80 years old, okay? We've been following his life for a long time. He's 80 years old. What do we know about 80-year-olds? They stopped caring what you, think, what you thought about 30 years ago, am I right? Like, they're like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm, I, I, I'm over this. I, uh, 
My family went and got Chick-fil-A, and I went in and went in to, you know, pick, pick it up on Friday. And uh, look, and there's this big line, everybody wearing masks, except for this one old man right at the front. He's just standing there holding a napkin in front of his mouth. <laughs> just like, and did anybody say anything to him? No. No, because we know he doesn't care. He, we were just happy he was wearing pants at this point, right? <laughs> You're just like, because hey, you don't care. This is where Daniel's at. But, but when we're introduced to Daniel, it's at a very young age. He's a teenager, and we realize that it, was that it was when he was a young man that he was training in both courage and righteousness. That's when it began. Look at what it says in verse 10. It says, he got down on his knees three times a day, and he prayed, and he gave thanks before God as he had previously done. This is nothing new. It's not like he was trying to make a statement here. He was like, no, I worship. I pray three times a day in that window, looking to my homeland and you're not gonna stop me. And that's a practice he had developed his whole life. And I need you to hear this, you guys. We are raising the next generation, and we need to raise them to be courageous. Like, I find myself so careful about the words I use with kids right now. Like, like when I'm out with my son, I find myself trying to limit, saying, hey, hey, be careful, be careful. And I'm like, no, 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 be courageous. Like, be courageous. Like, don't play in traffic, but be courageous, you know? There's limits to these things. But what it looks like, my, my daughter... My, my daughter, Nova, she is just, she's the sweetest, most beautiful little princess in the world. Like, like, she's so quiet and meek, and she loves, like, bunnies and stuffies and pink things and rainbows and everything about her I just love. But she's also, she's got a lion inside of her. And as her father, I do not want to tame that lion. My wife uh, was at Ikea with her. This is pre-pandemic, and they were, you know, kind of... Uh, my daughter's running around. That's what you do when you have kids. You take them to Ikea and you let them run around on all the levels and they're tired and you, and, and you drive home. And so she's running around and she, she's running, running across this path and she trips and slips and falls and slides and she, she lands right in front of this man. And uh, she's just, you know, the embarrassment of that. And she slowly looks up and looks up and then he just looks down and he goes, that's why you shouldn't run. And he just like steps around her. And she just kind of slowly gets up as just like the shame and the embarrassment starts to hit her. And she starts to walk towards where she was going. And my wife says all of a sudden she just stops. And she turns around and she just looks at him and she just goes, <laughs> And I'm like, that's my girl. That's right. You are a lion. I want you to be courageous and ferocious. We, a couple months ago, we were going on vacation, so we had to get COVID tests for our whole family. And my daughter, she got worked up over it, and she just was like a wild banshee. She's like, you are not sticking that Q-tip up my nose. It took her mother and I, it took all of our strength to hold her down. My wife was holding her hands, and I held her, you know, head back, and I was like, oh, yeah, there you go. It's good for her. And I, and I, and I do the swipe, and, and we get done, and, I, and, and what did I do when we're done? Did I look at her and like, no, but you need to obey me. You need to listen. No, I, I took her precious little face in my hands. And I said, Nova, I am so proud of you. If anyone ever tries to do anything to you that you don't want them to, you fight like hell. And then I bought her an ice cream cone with sprinkles, right? <laughs> you guys, we are not coddling children. We're sharpening arrows. This is, we're raising a generation. Because hard times, what do they do? They create a strong generation. What does a strong generation do? It creates good times. But what, do good, what does good times do? It creates a weak generation. And what do weak 
generations do, they create hard times. Where are we at? We are in hard times. You know why? Because we are a weak generation. I'm not talking about my, our fathers and mothers, our grandfathers and grandmothers. I'm talking about our generation. We are a weak generation that has been marked by hookup culture rather than lifelong commitment. We have lived these lives of false fantasy, playing video games and living on social media, rather than courageously taking risks and living bravely. We have these fake digital lives we live and we wonder why we don't have courage and strength. We, We have collapsed all meaning and truth that causes any kind of friction, rather than allowing ourselves to be convicted by God's word. We need to raise a courageous generation you guys filled with men who lay their lives down. Say, say, I don't use my strength to take. I use my strength to protect. That's what it means to be a man, is you serve. You lay your life down as Jesus laid his life down. We need to raise a courageous generation of women who boldly stand by their convictions, who live with courage with strength and with loving self-sacrifice, that's who you're raising. We need to, to, to set them up for marriages that fight through the hard times because the hard times are gonna come. Every marriage is gonna have pain and friction and, we, and when you're weak, you just give up and walk away. But we need them strong enough to say, this is worth fighting for. I'm building something for the future. I'm willing to do the counseling. I'm willing to do the hard work. I'm willing to fight for this covenant and this commitment that I made. This is what marriage is. And we need a church that defies evil and clings to what is good. This is who we're raising. So let's raise this generation. Pour into your kids. Like, put your phone down and raise your children. Like, like stop just being so distracted. and like Stop letting Netflix raise your kids and raise them. Pour into their lives. Look, we have precious little hearts and minds back there. Go serve those kids. You're not babysitting. You're raising disciples. Pour into, we have this beautiful opportunity. And it starts now. We need to understand that Daniel's courage was forged when he was young. And so we need to be a people who invest in the next generation. Pick it up in verse 16. It says, then, The king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. I want you to pay attention to how the king talks about Daniel. Then the king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. What does the king want? He wants Daniel's life to be spared. He was tricked into passing this law. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace, and he spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. What has Daniel done? See, Daniel had the courage to befriend his enemies. And we can sit here, and we can get kind of fired up. You know, I'm almost a little sweaty right now, right? We say, yes, we need to stand by truth. Yes, we need to make a stand, and I believe all of that. But don't forget, we're followers of Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He made friends out of his enemies. Yes, he went to the cross courageously, but he loved every single person along the way. And we need to be a people that there, look, there is a gap right now. 
there is a division and a separation and just spouting the word unity does nothing. But living in a way that bridges the gap can do everything. That's who we are called to be as Christians, as followers of Jesus. And one of the greatest acts of courage that you can take in today's day and age is to lovingly listen to, embrace, and honor those who disagree with you. Stop dividing, stop separating because somebody has a different opinion. Like, pursue, listen, love, engage. Look, the courageous pursue relationships with those who they disagree with. The courageous restore relationship where there has been wounds. The courageous live lives marked by mutual honor no matter what their views are and your views are. It's the coward that spouts out opinions without care for his fellow man. We are followers of Jesus. And so, yes, we live boldly. We live courageously. And part of that is making friends out of enemies, loving those who have wounded us, listening to those who are not like us. Because we need to be aware, as Nietzsche said, beware that when fighting monsters, you yourself do not become a monster. For when you gaze long into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. There's nothing that Babylon and the enemy would love more for us to become evil like them, full of, full of hatred and anger because we're right and you're wrong. Because Daniel befriended his enemies, and I guarantee you, as he would gather at that window and pray three times a day, you know who he prayed for? He prayed for his enemies. He prayed for those satraps that were working against them. He prayed for the king. He prayed for God's glory. You know how I know that? Because it's a prophetic picture. Daniel's a prophetic picture of Jesus. And what did Jesus say? He said, pray for those who persecute you. He said, love your enemies. That may be the most courageous thing you can do in a day and age like this. And so this isn't about just sharing opinions on social media and making political stances. This is about being disciples and following in the footsteps of our rabbi. I love that Daniel did not become a lion in the midst of this, devouring his enemies, but he surrendered himself to the lions because he knows ultimately it's in the hands of the lion of Judah. Then at daybreak, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. You hear that? This is how much the the king loved Daniel. This is what their relationship is. The king declared to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him. Why? Because he had trusted in his God. Here's what I need you to know is Daniel's courage had a source outside of himself. Man, we can get passionate about this and we can get fired up on this and we can say, yes, like we wanna be courageous. But then we feel defeated because we are not courageous. 
but Jesus is. And Jesus lived the life that we could not live. And he sent his spirit to live within us. And this is what faith is. It's the belief that if we walk in obedience, I'm in God's hands. See, Daniel didn't know that he would uh, survive this. Because easily God could have said, all right, and, and Daniel's gonna be killed and I'm gonna use that to advance my kingdom and bring me glory. That's what God does. And Daniel was like, I'm good with it. Either way. That's what faith is. Trusting that you are in the hands of a good God if you walk in his obedience. That's how we declare faith. It's not about uh, having no fear or limiting fear or hiding our fear. There's a man who told a story about his father who had passed away and he said his father was the bravest man he ever met. His father was this great leader, had all these... all these families and men and women under him that he cared for and he looked over and he protected. And, and he said, they were, I had to care for them like children. And he said, because I cared for so many people, every night when I went to bed, I had fear in my heart. And every morning when I woke up, I had fear in my mind. This man says, when he was a little boy, he asked his father, how can that be? How can a man be brave when he's afraid? His father just looks at him and says, that's the only time a man can be brave. This is a moment for courage. Courage is not about lacking fear. Courage is about facing fears because your God is bigger than your Babylon. It's a source outside of ourselves. And here's what's so beautiful, that that we have something even that Daniel did not because of the life of Jesus. We have a Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. A Jesus who has completed, lived a life we could not live has completed and lived all things, and then he sent his helper, the Holy Spirit, to dwell and live in us. And the same spirit that shut the mouths of lions lives in you. So live like it. Live courageously. The same spirit that straightened and strengthened the slingshot of David lives in you, so be courageous. The same spirit that parted the Red Sea, the same spirit that opened the eyes of Paul, as Paul says in Romans 8, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. Do you realize that? that? That's the Holy Spirit. That's the spirit that's in you that has the power to raise the dead to life, to shut the jaws of lions. It's not something within ourselves, not some kind of way we dig deeper or try harder or just be our true selves. It's a surrender to God's work and our lives. So be a spirit-filled father. Be a spirit-filled wife. Be a spirit-filled carpenter, police officer, barista, pastor, husband, nurse, graphic designer, leader, mother, teacher. Let the spirit move and work in you because then we can be spirit-filled disciples who live lives of courageous faith, marked by our faith not drowning in our fear. That's what we're called to. And look, if you're here tonight and you're like, and I'm just, like, I'm just checking out church. I'm like, why is he yelling so much? Welcome to church. But if you're like, I'm not a follower of Jesus and you've not submitted yet submitted to his lordship, today's the day. Jesus is calling you. He is beckoning you. Maybe you've been coming for a few months and you're like, I don't know where I stand all this. Surrender to him. Put your faith in him. And you know what he does? He will save you. 
He will guard you. He will protect you. He will put his Holy Spirit in you as a seal, as a stamp of protection for his, for his return and to empower you to live the life you cannot live. But you have to surrender first. You have to come to him first. And so like Daniel, would we be people who find courage outside of ourselves? And lastly, what we see about Daniel's courage is that it was contagious. Look at King Darius's response. I, want, I, want, I just want you to see what it does in him. Then King Darius wrote to all the people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. There's a foreign pagan Babylonian king saying this. For he is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall, shall be no end. He delivers and he rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of lions. What does Daniel's courage do? It spreads. The last sermon I preached when we were meeting at Mountain View, I didn't know it was going to be my last sermon there because that's when everything shut down. By God's sovereign will, I preached a sermon on fear. And uh, I was rereading it this week. And I wanna read this to you. It says, fear is a toxic disease that spreads and affects us. It changes us. It causes us to live in a false reality in which we surrender to the princes of this world rather than the king of eternity. And fear is contagious. And that's as true today as it was 14 months ago. But you know what else is contagious? Courage. And I need you to know there are people in your lives, friends, neighbors, coworkers, loved ones, and they know you go to church. And they are looking to you for courage. They are looking to you for strength, and hope and truth. And they are hungry now more than ever. And what they need is people, men and women who courageously stand by their convictions, who courageously stand up against evil, who courageously stand for those who cannot stand for themselves. This is what the church is to be. This is what we're to do. As the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon said, if there ever be a time when the mind is sensitive, it's when death is abroad. I recollect when I first came to London, how anxiously people listened to the gospel, for the cholera was raging terribly. There was little scoffing then. So as you look around in these times, in these moments, and you're like, man, what is happening? What's happening is God is preparing the soil of people's hearts to receive the gospel if we would but live it preach it, teach it, and declare it with all of our lives. Because we have one goal. It's to make the name of Jesus famous in our city. That's what we live for. That's the role of the church. And what did, Je what did Jesus say? He said, you're the light of the world. You realize that? And what better time to shine light than in a season of darkness? He said, you're a city on a hill. 
meaning you should stand strong, tall, and stand out and be in a beacon of hope. You're the salt of the earth. That's who the church is. You guys, this is our moment in time. We have a hungry, desperate, hurting community around us, people you love. And they're looking to you to live a life marked by courage, to live a life that pursues those you disagree with, to live a life of worship no matter the cost, to raise a courageous generation, to live a spirit-filled life. A couple weeks ago, somebody told me about their first experience walking into Rise about a month ago. I was asking what it was like, and they said, I feel like I walked into a different world. I was like, how was that? And they're like, it was the most refreshing thing I've experienced in a year. I can't wait to come back every week. And I sat here in this room with all of you. And I sat under Nolan's sermon. And then I stood and raised my hands and my voice in worship. And I looked around this room. And I just saw person after person surrendered to King Jesus. And I watched as people gathered in the back and laid hands on each other and prayed for one another. And I watched as families and roommates and friends gathered at the Lord's table and took communion with each other and shared this moment with each other. And I walked as people fellowshiped and laughed and smiled at one another and were filled with joy. And I just thought, like, where am I right now? What world am I in? And the answer is the kingdom of God. Because when you walk into the church, it should feel nothing like the world around you. It should be marked by hope. It should be marked by grace. It should be marked by truth. It should be marked by fellowship and love. This is what the church is called to be. And so we're going to be the church no matter what happens around us. Because our city and our world and our community needs it. And even if they reject us, I don't care. Because Jesus is worthy of our worship. And so tonight, would you courageously come to the Lord's table? Would you stop as a follower of Jesus and remember that his, the Son of God, His body was broken so that you could be made whole. His blood was poured out so that you may be washed clean. Remember that. Would you be courageous about allowing others to pray for you in the response room? To say, you, you know what, I've been fighting this lie that I have to do it all myself. Or I've been fighting this lie that nobody cares or nobody wants to know. No, we are called to be a body. We are called to carry each other's burdens. And the only way we can do that is if we let each other in. So have the courage to be weak and vulnerable. And would you courageously stand and sing to your king? Don't care about anybody else care about any opinions or perspectives just care about Jesus will you stand with me Jesus you are worthy your name is beautiful and righteous you didn't care the cost though it cost you everything you pursued us in love you laid down your life Lord would be we be a courageous church that doesn't cower in fear that doesn't succumb to evil, that doesn't make idols out of 
political parties or stances, but would we be a church that lifts the name of Jesus high? Would we be a church that lives lives for your glory, for your praise? And we have one prayer. Would your name be famous in this city? We pray all this in your name.